Good morning. Uh, Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 15. If you're following along with us in the daily Bible reading, um, John chapter 15 was this week. So I want to look at this together. We've I've been up here before and done John chapter 15, and so I hesitated at first, but then as I was thinking and praying and reading through, I saw some new things that I didn't see last time, I think. So that's the beauty of God's word is that you can keep reading it and find new truth and more truth uh, the longer you look at it. So we're going to look at John 15. Before we look at the actual chapter, though, you need to understand what's going on. So this is right before Jesus is going to the garden to pray and right before he's going to be arrested to be murdered. And this is during the final dinner together of the disciples and Jesus. And in the other three Gospels, it's usually a quick thing. They, they eat, there's a little bit of talking, and then they go to the garden. But in John, they eat, and then a whole lot of other stuff happens. A lot of teaching, um, a lot of illustrations, and a lot of final attempts of, from Jesus to really let his disciples know what his whole message has been about, what his whole ministry has been about, and what to expect after he's gone. Because he keeps telling them, I'm leaving. And he's been telling them that for years. I'm not going to be with you forever. And they kind of don't understand it, and they kind of ignore it and move on. And then now it's coming to the moment when Jesus is going to be gone from them, and they're finally starting to pick up that this is really going to happen. Jesus is about to not be with us anymore. And they're confused because they haven't really been able to understand a lot of things that Jesus has said. And so they start asking questions. And in John 13 and in John 14, several different disciples ask several different questions. Peter in John 13 says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, I'm going. And Peter said, where are you going? In chapter 14, Thomas says, Lord, where are you going, and how can we go there too? In John 14, Philip, he doesn't ask a question, but he says, Jesus, if you just show us God, then we'll know that what you've been saying is true, and we'll know where to find you. We'll know. If you would just show us God, we'll know. And then Judas in chapter 14 of John, not Iscariot, the other Judas, He said, Jesus, how will you show us God? So those are interesting questions if you think about the three years that Jesus has spent with his friends, how over and over and over again he was trying to show them God, and he was trying to tell them where he was going, and he was trying to tell them that there was a time coming when he wouldn't be physically next to them anymore. And then, (laughs) I don't know, but I imagine at this last dinner with the weight of what's about to happen on Jesus' shoulders to hear those questions might have been like, wow, where have you been? (laughs) How'd you not get it? But Jesus doesn't leave them in their doubt. He spends the next few chapters and chapter 15 that we're going to look at, he spends his time clarifying for them some things and assuring them of some things and encouraging them of some things. And I think that If you're a disciple of Jesus in a time when he's not physically next to you, walking with you and performing miracles every day in your life, then I think these words 
can be encouragements and can be clarifying and can be assuring to you as well. They were essentially asking, Jesus, we're your disciples, but you're going to be gone. What do we do next? What do we do when you're not right next to us, when you're not physically on this earth with us anymore? And I mean, they weren't even thinking in those terms. We think in those terms because we know a little bit more of the story. But that's essentially what they're asking. So in chapter 15 of John, Jesus starts out by making a very pointed and impactful statement. He says this in verse 1. He says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. I don't know if they got it right away. I hope they did. But Jesus spends his first five words of John chapter 15 laying an enormous truth for assurance, for clarity, for encouragement on his friends there that night at dinner. He says, I am the true vine. Now, you and I might not connect exactly with what that means, but that's okay. We're going to talk about it a little bit. That's why we read Psalm 80. If you remember back in Psalm 80, and there are other places in the Old Testament that this idea, this illustration, this word picture of a vine comes up, but vines are extremely, and these are grapevines, are extremely important to the identity of the Israelites and God's people. But when he says, I am the true vine, he's calling back to Psalm 80 where it says, the the psalmist is asking God for salvation to come and bring the kingdom of God to rescue Israel from their enemies. And it says this in verse 8, you have brought a vine out of Egypt, of Psalm 80, you have cast out the nations and planted it. So the psalmist uses this word picture of a grapevine, and it's going to be a massive vineyard that God is bringing, and that's his kingdom is coming, and it's going to be like a massive vineyard covering the entire earth. You prepared room for it. You caused it to take deep root, and it filled the whole land. All the hills were covered with the shadow, not even just with the vine itself, but the shadow of this vineyard. And a vineyard is important to the identity of Israel because it is one of their most important life-giving crops. Grapevines were necessary for the flourishing of Israel. In fact, it was so important to them that it was part of their national emblem. And on the temple, there was a golden vine, grapevine, etched at the entrance of the temple. It's extremely important. And throughout the history of Israel, over and over again, Psalmists and Isaiah and other prophets and God himself would come and say, my kingdom is going to be like this massive, bountiful vineyard. But in Psalm 80, uh, if you uh, keep reading or if you heard what I said earlier, you'll notice that after it talks about how massive this vineyard could be and how great the kingdom of God is going to be when it's set up on this earth, you'll notice that um, things aren't so great. Going on in Psalm 80, it says, Why have you broken down her hedges? The boar of the woods uproots the vine. It talks about branches being cut off and being burned, and it talks about how things aren't going so well for this vineyard and What we need to understand is that when God set up his covenant with Israel, he said, if you keep my commands, you will be blessed, you will be fruitful, 
and my kingdom will come. But we know that Israel failed over and over and over again to fulfill their part in the covenant of God. They could not keep God's law and continually fell away from his countenance and grace into sin. And of course, the Lord would go back and get them and, and restore them, but they would fall again and again. And what has became, well, should have become clear to the Israelites is that there's no way they could ever realize or bring the vineyard of God, the kingdom of God, to this earth because of their sin. And so when Jesus says, I'm the true vine, he's saying, I'm the one that will fulfill that promise. I'm the one that will bring the kingdom of God. I'm the one that can keep God's law. I'm the one that can keep the covenant of God. If you're a disciple of Jesus and you hear that, maybe you think, okay, that's fine. I've, I guess I've believed that for three years. I've been following you everywhere. But I think after Jesus leaves and their whole dynamic and world changes, and instead of being able to walk around and be uh, presented with problems and presented with issues and things like that and going to Jesus and say, Jesus, help us out, figure this out for us, when they no longer have Jesus to help them, they might start to think, well, is this worth it? Was Jesus really who he said he was? I mean, the kingdom of God is supposed to be here. He's the true vine, but it's still not here. Rome's still in control. The nation of Israel is still subjugated. Is he really the true vine? And Jesus wants them to know, I am the true vine. He goes on and he says this, and, and all he's doing is he's just filling out the word picture and, and something that they would have known there that night at that dinner. Um, if the grapevine is so important to the Israelites, they know exactly what it takes to grow good grapes, to grow fruitful grapevines. And so Jesus just follows along with his illustration to let them know where they stand in this picture. Jesus is the vine, the true vine, the one that's going to bring the kingdom of God. And that means that God the Father is the vine dresser. God the Father is the gardener. He's the one that takes care of the vine and makes sure things um, go well, that things are fruitful, that the garden grows. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. He says, listen, God the Father is the gardener, and here's what a gardener will do for a grapevine. Because a gardener, the gardener, the vine dresser, wants the absolute best and most amount of grapes out of a vine, it, uh, the, the vine dresser does two things, and God does these two things. Cuts away, cuts off dead branches, because if you think of the vine, the branches, that's where the fruit comes on, right? The fruit doesn't grow on the vine, it grows off branches. So the vine dresser cuts off branches that are dead and doesn't bear fruit, and he prunes branches that do bear fruit and are alive. And to prune means to cut back, not cut off, but to cut back. So generally, grapevines are trained to grow the best fruit they possibly can grow. And training a grapevine, excuse me, generally means that you cut off the dead things and you prune the living things. And you do this for about three to five years, depending on your vine and your surroundings and Within three to five years after you've trained your grapevine, it will produce the best fruit 
it could possibly produce. And Jesus says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. He's the one who's making sure that the life-giving gospel of the kingdom of God is going to come and bring the kingdom of God to earth. So he cuts off dead branches and he prunes back good branches so that it may bear more fruit. Well, without getting right into it, although he will say it several more times in John 15, Jesus says, well then, who's left? In the analogy, who's left? There's the vine, that's me. There's the vine dresser, that's my father. And so on a vine, you have branches. Who could the branches possibly be? Even the disciples had to be able to figure this one out. It would be them. They are the branches. And he says this interesting thing in verse 3, where he kind of steps back away. He, he backs out of the illustration a little bit. So that because, I mean, you know these guys. <laughs> they don't get it. A lot of times, they don't get it. So they need a little bit extra every now and then. And so Jesus steps back out of the illustration and he wants to clear something up for them. Because if you hear that, maybe that night you're thinking, whoa, which branch am I? Am I the dead branch? I mean, Peter's got to be thinking it's him, right? Like ever, thinking back to everything he's, everything he's experienced with Jesus, he's got to think, well, it's probably me. Or am I the good branch that the Lord will work on? In verse 3, Jesus says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Jesus isn't really talking about gardens and grapevines and, and agriculture or anything like that. He's talking about their spiritual condition. If you're a disciple of Christ, what he's saying is you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. The word of Jesus, the gospel message, the truth that he spoke, cleanses our sinful hearts. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus, a true disciple of Jesus will have been cleaned by his word. Your sin will have been dealt with. So if you have a question, am I the dead branch? Or am I the living branch? Where do you stand in relation to the word of Jesus? There was one person there that night, at least, one person for sure, that had not been cleansed by the word of Christ. And he, as the night goes on, begins to really figure that out. Um, but we're not going to get into that. But, but, but that's how powerful the word of God is. So Jesus says, I'm the vine. The Father's the vine dresser. You're the branches. God will be working on you. Which branch will you be? He says this in verse 4. So here's what you need to do. You need to abide in me. I don't know if, if you were here the last time I spoke about John 15, but if you were, I talked all about that word abide, and if you go through this chapter, you can underline, and several times, I think up to 10 times, Jesus says abide. And here he starts out by saying abide in me, and abide means to dwell, to live in. Your home is your abode, it's where you abide. Jesus says live in me, dwell in me. It's an intimate relationship where you're inside and you know everything about whatever you're abiding in. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus says if you want to be a fruitful, healthy branch that is going to be pruned, not cut off, then you need to be intimately connected to Christ's cleansing words. 
and you can't even bear fruit, you can't even be trained, and you can't even um, help be part of the life-giving kingdom of God unless you are abiding in Jesus. So the call to the disciple is, make sure you're abiding in Christ. You're living in Jesus. Your life, your thoughts, your actions, everything about you is done through the lens of Christ's words. So he kind of starts out that way, uh, and, and he says, he kind of gives them an introduction. Here, here's what I'm all about. Here's what it's all about. Here's what it means to follow me, and here's your lifeline for when I go, what you need to continue, what you need to be my disciple, what you need to do to bear fruit. And he's going to start talking a lot about fruit. So the next uh, couple of sections I want to look at are the two fruits, the two types of fruit. Now, there's a lot of different ways you can have fruit as a disciple of Jesus. I mean, you know, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, right? There's many different things. But Jesus kind of gives two foundational fruits that disciples of Christ, that disciples of Jesus, that servants of God need to be producing in their life. And the first one starts in verse five. Verse five. And we kind of already talked about it, but it's so important that Jesus brings it back up and then starts to tell us a little bit what it can mean for your life, what it can mean for your experience. In verse five, it says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. You're not going to bear any fruit as a branch unless you are dwelling, you are intimately connected to Jesus, knowing what he knows, knowing what he says, knowing how he thinks, knowing what he would do. You can't produce the fruit of the vine of Christ unless you know how Jesus would think, act, and speak. You have to be intimately connected to him. Thankfully, we have his words written down, recorded for us, translated in our own language in a way that you and I can understand and study and devote our lives to knowing and working out. That's what Jesus is asking us to do. Abide in him. For without me, you can do nothing. And that's on a grand scale. That doesn't mean that if you don't know Jesus, you can't go tie your shoes, or you can't go feed the poor, or you can't do good deeds. It's not saying that at all. Or you can't be successful. Plenty of people do that and can do that without knowing or living the words of Christ. But what he's talking about is things that matter eternally. Your final destination is one of those things. Your good works for Christ are those things. You are standing before the Father on Judgment Day are those things. If you want to do anything that matters, then you can't do it unless you are in Jesus. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. We're back to the illustration. They gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Maybe you do this. You prune, your, or you, you prune your trees and you cut off the dead things and then you have a lot of brush laying around so maybe you light it on fire to get rid of it or you send it through a wood chipper to get rid of it or however you get rid of all the brush and debris, the dead things laying around your yard. It's the same thing here. This is what happens to those who really are not cleansed or transformed by the power of the word of Jesus. 
You are not helping the vine because the, the life-giving power of the vine is not flowing into you. And so the vine dresser has to cut it off. So these are sobering words. They're serious, heavy things to consider. But like I said, Jesus is here to encourage and to build up and to clarify for his friends what to expect. If you read through the rest of, uh, or if you read through the Gospels, or if you read through Acts and things like that, you'll notice, and, and well, the rest of the New Testament, you'll notice that over and over and over again, the authors, Paul and Peter and John and Luke, they are writing to Christians who are dealing with people coming into the church saying, I know what Jesus would have you do, and it's an anti-gospel. I know what you need for salvation, and it's an anti-gospel. I know what it takes for God to be, um, to be pleased with you, and it's an anti-gospel. People coming to the church, people saying that they're leaders in the church, people saying that they are Christian, that they follow Christ, and they would lead others away from the true Jesus. It's all around, and it's imperative for the disciples of Christ to know the truth and to live the truth. And you can only know the truth and live the truth if you are cleansed with the words of Christ, his own true words. So, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, this is what can happen in your life. This is the power of abiding in Jesus. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Did you catch what he said there? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, we talked about that, right? Abiding in the word of Christ, abiding in his words, being transformed by his words. If you are there, and if you continue to seek that, if you continue to live there, if you continue to soak yourself in the word of the Lord, Paul says, be renewed by the transforming of your mind. If you do that, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Consider the life of Christ. He often, especially when um, there was a lot of people around, or just some people, but when people were around and he was sharing the truth of the Lord, he often prayed to God, for a miracle. He often prayed to God for something. How many times did God not grant what Jesus asked for? How many times did God not? I, I can't think of any. Even in the garden, just a few hours from now, John 15, Jesus prays to the Lord for rescue from the cross. But then it's interesting. Here's how I know it doesn't mean that, that you know, it doesn't mean if, if someone tells you this, the more holy you are, the more spiritual you are, God will just grant whatever you pray for. Here's how I know it doesn't mean that. Because when Jesus was in the garden and he was praying for rescue and relief from what he had to do, he then st- he said at the end, what did he say? He said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And even in that prayer, he said, God, do your will. And was God's will accomplished? That even that prayer was answered, right? Thankfully. Thankfully for us. 
And that's what it's talking about here. Jesus is just a model of what he's saying here. When you are transformed by the words of God, you start to gain the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is God's will be done, not my will be done. God always fulfilled Christ's requests because Christ's requests always aligned with the will of God. He was always about, what did he say to Mary? I must be about my father's business. He was always about his father's business. And that's what a disciple of Jesus needs to be about. That's a basic foundational fruit that needs to be growing in your life. And I love how he says, by this my father is glorified when you bear much fruit. When you are so attuned, when your mind is so transformed, when you are, like Philippians 2 says, when you have the mind of Christ within you, and your fruit is growing and the gospel is spreading and the kingdom of God is being shown to those who are in need, it says God is glorified. It's awesome. So that's the first fruit. Abiding in the words of Christ for your own personal growth as a disciple. That's what we need to be about. I know it's the Sunday school answer. Read the Bible. But yes, read the Bible. But don't just read the Bible. Let the Bible transform you. Let the words of Jesus cleanse you of your sin, transform your mind. Let it permeate everything about you. I can promise you that is a lifelong goal. You're not going to wake up one day and say, I've arrived, I've done it, I can check off every box that I needed to check off. We've made it. So this is what disciples need to be about. The second thing is this, and it's found in 9 through 10, and it says this. This is the second fruit that you need to be growing in your life, that you need to be cultivating on your branch. It's this. As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. I thought this phrase was interesting. As the Father loved me, I have loved you. Um, it could be a whole nother sermon or sermon series, so we're not going to get into all of the implications of what that means, but what Jesus is talking about, he's kind of giving us a picture of eternity before he became a man, and he's kind of giving us a picture of the love that God the Father had, has and had for God the Son. This love before creation, before time, before you and I, that they experienced together that is astounding, amazing, something that, um, that we can't even comprehend. And Jesus says, that love is the love I have for my disciples. So won't you abide, won't you dwell, won't you live in that love? He calls it my love, my love for you. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That's how you know when you're doing what Jesus says, that's how you know that you're in his love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I don't think any of Jesus' closest friends at the end of the day would have sat back and said, you know what, I don't think God loves Jesus. I don't think God the Father does not love his Son. I think they couldn't say that by simply watching Jesus, how he lived his life, the things he said, the things he did, the way he prayed, the way he taught, 
Everything about Jesus confirmed to them that he was in right, beautiful, loving relationship with God the Father. And Jesus says, you and I, my disciples and I, can have that same sort of relationship. These things, oh, sorry, don't read 11 yet. Wait, skip that one, hold on. Go to verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Okay, so Jesus says, here's how you and I can be in a loving relationship, disciple. But wait, you're not just called to be in that type of loving relationship with me. You're called to be in that type of loving relationship with everyone else around you, the other disciples sitting next to you. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says this. So, so they might say, okay, well, okay, so that means we need to forgive, right? Peter would have remembered that maybe. You know, I have to forgive a lot, 70 times seven, to forgive of that. Or I have to try to, you know, I have to try to feed people, I have to try to, to heal people, do all these things. Maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. Maybe that's the love Jesus is talking about because that's the love that Jesus demonstrated so often. But then Jesus says this. He says it's more than that. Greater love has no one than this, than that he laid down one's life for his friends. There's this, I mean, I would have, I just would have loved to be here when he said this, and I hope that they understood what this meant. Maybe they didn't right away, maybe it took some time. But this, let me read this again. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. We think, and I've already said it many times already, we think of the disciples and Jesus' friends. I mean, they were. But there was a different relationship that Jesus here is pointing out that has changed because of the love he comes to give. If you were a disciple of a rabbi, generally, back then, a follower of a teacher, and I mean like a dedicated, you left everything to go with them, you follow them, you walk right behind them, you listen to their teaching, you essentially are a servant, and you have given yourself over to a life of service to your rabbi. Similar things going on with Peter, James, John, and the rest of the 12. They were probably often considered by outsiders and probably considered among themselves as servants to Jesus. So if you think about that, it certainly makes the washing of the feet hit a little differently. But then he says this, you are, in verse 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For everything I heard from my father I have made known to you. Peter hasn't denied Christ Yet, but when he does, I wonder if these words come back to him. That he didn't just deny his master, didn't just deny a radical teacher, he didn't just deny a, politically, a political pariah, but he denied his friend. Who he already knew was the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, I am your friend. You are my friend. And there's no greater love than to lay down your life, to lose your life, to die for a friend. 
That's powerful stuff. Something I want to point out very quickly, though, is I don't want us to box this into one thing. When I read this, and maybe when you read this, the natural thing, of course, is to look to the cross. The disciples at that moment wouldn't have really known that yet, but Jesus will be laying down, physically laying down his life for his friends, which you might be one of. He will physically be doing that. But I think it's important to note that Jesus has been laying down his life for his friends for 33 years up to this point. And his friends, Peter, James, John, and, and, and Matthew, and, and, and those guys, he's been laying down his life for the last three years for them every day. Every day he has been sacrificing everything that he has owed by his own creation. In Philippians 2, it said, Jesus stepped out, uh, stepped out of his throne, off of his throne, and he made himself nothing, coming to be with us. Every day of his life, Jesus was laying down everything he was owed, everything he deserved, the God of creation, the God of the universe, your God, and your enemy, because of your sin, he laid that he, he laid aside everything he was owed and sacrificed all for his friends. Every time he didn't just end the Pharisees for their blasphemy against him, he's laying down his life for those who needed to hear the gospel. That sacrificial love is not just a call to maybe lose your physical life, but it is a call to lay down your own personal wants desires, and comforts for the better of another and for the glory of God, right? By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And the fruit of sacrificial love is something that the disciple of Jesus must be growing in their life. You have to. We have to. We have to. It's a calling. It's a goal. It's a mission. It's a job. What do we do when Jesus isn't here? How do we live in a world that doesn't know Christ, that rejects Christ, that is hostile to Jesus? The first thing we have to do is we have to abide in his word, and the second thing we have to do is we have to abide in his love. And if you're not doing those things in a way that people are affected by it, if your fruit isn't getting to other people, then what's it doing? Is it really the best fruit that could be growing? The vine dresser, God the Father, is all about making sure the true vine's fruit is the best it could possibly be. So he'll give you the opportunities to show your fruit. He'll give you the opportunities to produce more fruit. Are we taking them? Are we attuned to when they come? Do we recognize the opportunities to actually be disciples of Jesus? It's a lifelong mission and our lifelong goal. Jesus ends chapter 15, not that he spoke in chapters, but he ends this, chapter 15, well, mostly ends, we're not going to go into the part about the Holy Spirit, we don't have the time, but he wants his disciples to know something that 
is going to be true. He said, listen, the world's going to hate you. The world in John, the book of John, comes up a lot, that, that title. And the world is a system, any system. So it could be your culture, it could be your job, it could be your school, it could be whatever. Is any system that is opposed to God. And if it's opposed to God and you're a disciple of Jesus, then that means it will hate you. Why? Because it hated Jesus I don't have to spell that out for you. You know that even the most holy people of that time, those considered the most holy, those considered the most spiritual, hated Jesus the most. Because they were branches that were dead and would not be, not just, that just would not be cleansed by his word. And Jesus says you can expect that. You can expect opposition. You can expect to become against by the world if you are my disciple. Well, that doesn't sound like it's very encouraging to end on. (laughs) And not that Jesus wasn't about sharing truth even when it wasn't so encouraging, but I want to go back to verse 11 that I almost said. But I want to go back to verse 11 and I want to point this out. I mean, not only did Jesus overcome the world, as he says, in his death and resurrection, not only is Jesus the creator of the universe, not only is Jesus in complete control of all things and the power of God, but he says this in verse 11. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. In the Bible, maybe elsewhere, but generally when we read about joy, we're not supposed to walk away thinking happiness, like that feeling, you know, of just everything's great and happy and wonderful. I mean, that's just not the reality of the world we live in. That's just not the reality of a world cursed by sin. That's just not the reality of broken people with broken relationships who are selfish. There's no way in this life that we will be 100% always happy, comfortable, and feeling good. It's just not possible. And Jesus knows that because he came and he experienced life in a cursed earth with cursed people, with sinful people, with broken relationships and selfish sinners. He experienced life with them. And he said, I want you to abide in me and my words. I want you to abide and practice my love so that no matter what comes your way in this life, and there will be hardships, I promise it, that the joy that I have... I mean, think about this. He's just a few hours away from the most painful, torturous death in the history of humanity. And he's talking about joy. To be able to pray, Lord, take this cup if you can, but your will be done is proof that Christ understood and practiced joy. Joy is even when you are crushed and laid low, you're not hopeless. You don't give up. 
you are not utterly defeated. That's the joy that's in Jesus. He knows that victory is imminent despite what he experiences, despite what it looks like. I mean, it looked like, well, Rome didn't care, but the Romans who were there looked like, I mean, they were sitting thinking, who is this? This Jew from some no-name town that has stirred up some problems. Okay, just crush it. It's no problem. We do this all the time. The religious leaders, just crush it. It's no problem. Just, it, it, I mean, it's a problem right now because it's a headache for us, but just, just end this. Just get rid of him. It'll be done. We'll be, we'll be over. We can go back to the way things were. And Jesus is put on the cross, and it looks like Rome is going to get what it wants. It wants. It looks like the Pharisees are going to get what it wants. It looks like evil is going to get what it wants. And Jesus goes into the tomb, and his followers are utterly defeated. And people are leaving and walking and saying, wow, what, what, what did we just experience? It's over now. And on that road to Emmaus, those disciples who were leaving are met by a man who turns out to be the risen Jesus, who then can smile at them and say, look, that, <laughs> there, this was never in any doubt. I am always going to accomplish my work. The kingdom of God will come. It was promised thousands and thousands of years before and God always keeps his promises that's the joy Christ could have in those moments where it felt like to you and I would feel like is this even worth continuing that's the joy you can learn and develop as a disciple of Christ because even though he's not physically here and and the disciples that Day that night, we're probably like, if you're not physically here, then there's, you know, what are we going to do? There, there's nothing here. Jesus goes on in 16, the end of 15 and 16, and say, I'm sending you someone. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit so that you're never, ever separated from God. If you are his disciple, if you are the living, a living branch that he prunes, he is with you, and you can be assured that no matter what you experience in this life, if you abide in his word and if you abide in his love, God is pleased with you and you will have victory. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the records we have of what Jesus said. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has not been cleansed by your word, is not a follower of Jesus, is not called a disciple. Father, that you would work in their hearts, that you would draw them to you. As difficult as it might be to follow Christ, it's the only thing that is worth doing because it's the only thing that can bring the ultimate joy, the ultimate victory, the ultimate peace. It's the only thing that can bring the meaning to what goes on in this life. So, Father, I pray for anyone who does not know you that they would come to you this morning. They would put their trust in what Jesus did on the cross and what he did in his resurrection, Father, that he makes it possible to have forgiveness of sins. And, Father, for those disciples of Christ who are here, who have been walking, who have been pruned, 
not always an easy experience. Father, give them the peace to continue. Give them the joy that Jesus experienced to continue. Help us as a church abide in your word and abide in your love so that no matter what, when people look at us, they see Christ and they know there's hope. We thank you and we love you in your name. Amen.